We've been here in Luke's gospel uh, going on almost two years. We've been taking our time going through the gospel of Luke. And uh, as you guys have seen, you know, it covers three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And the last six chapters, man, he hits the brakes and we slow down. We focus on the final week of Jesus' uh, life and ministry here on earth. And, uh, and we have been here at the Last Supper in particular when Jesus is literally hours from death uh, for the past several weeks. <clears throat> and Jesus, what is he doing? He's preparing his disciples for what's coming. And so he does three things that we've been looking at. He exhorts them of the greatness of serving. Uh, He encourages them um, of the great reward that is to come in heaven that they will receive. And then thirdly, he's equipping them um, for the great trials that await them. And last week, we looked at how the Lord warning Peter and all of the disciples, listen, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you as wheat. And we looked at last week in particular how the Lord allows our trials and the purpose that our trials serve. Um, Well, as we continue now this morning, picking it up in verse 35 where we left off, Jesus is continuing on this track of encouragement, and he's going to do two primary things today. Number one, he's going to remind the disciples of his faithful provision for them in the past, and secondly, he's going to ready them for the tough road that lies ahead, because what he's going to reveal to them is that not only is Satan against them, but the world is going to be against them as well. And so Jesus is preparing them uh, for that, preparing us for how we can face tough times uh, as well. So let's pick it up. Verse 35, Jesus says to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And so they said, Nothing. We lacked nothing. Now, up until uh, Luke chapter 9, Jesus was ministering uh, and Jesus was preaching the gospel throughout the region. He was exercising power and he was exercising authority. But something unique happened about chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. Um, And in chapter 9, what Jesus did was he called and he commissioned his disciples to join him in the work. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. He, when he says, when I, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, he's talking about what he did in Luke chapter 9. And (coughs) so... Uh, it's incredible to, to see. Let me put it on the screen for you just to refresh your memory. Luke chapter 9, uh, picking it up in verse 1. It says, Then he called his 12 disciples together. He gave them power and authority over uh, all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. God gave them this supernatural power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. But really the emphasis was the preaching of the gospel. He gave them the, the, the powers over sickness and demons and so on to authenticate the message that he wanted them then to preach. Really the thrust was the preaching of the gospel. Um, and um, he said to them, verse 3, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and uh, from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, 
Uh, When you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And of course, they came back and we saw how how just psyched they were. I mean, just an amazing thing when God uses you, when you step out and you serve and you watch God's power work in you and work through you. Man, it's an exhilarating thing. And certainly the disciples experienced that. But the point is that the Bible makes clear that God's work of redemption here on earth, it is a work that God himself does. Nothing that we will do uh, has any value, has any significance, unless it's the Lord that's building the house, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain, which build it. So so the, the, the idea is that God's work of redemption here on earth, it's a work that God does, but from the beginning... He involves men and women in the work that he wants to do. Think about it. When, when God came into the world, when Jesus became a man, right, what, what did he do? He involved Mary in the process when he, became, when he came in the likeness of men. Jesus had a work to do, but he did it through a person, through, through, through people just like you and me. When, when, when he came into the world, he involved the shepherds to herald his coming. Uh, when, uh, when he was ministering and working and serving and the power and the authority of God, he involved his disciples in Luke chapter 9 as he continued his work on earth. And as you continue through the Bible, you get to the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. And, and Luke tells us very clearly in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' work continues through us. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He he was referring in the book of Acts back to the gospel of Luke. He's talking about what Jesus began and began is the operative word because it implies that Jesus' work continues. And the book of Acts is all about how Jesus' work continues through ordinary men and women just like you and me. How God wants to minister, how he wants to work and how he involves us in that work. And so there in Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus calling his disciples just as he also calls us. We see him commissioning his disciples to preach the gospel just as he also has given you and I that same responsibility. Jesus, in his great commission, he said this, Matthew 28. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, here's his promise, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And so what does Jesus do? He calls his disciples, he commissions his disciples, and the third thing he does there in Luke chapter 9, he provided for his disciples, right? He gave them power, he gave them authority, and, and the, the implication to us is simple, that hey, whatever God calls you to do, he will empower you through. He will give to you the power that you need. Now, when the disciples were sent out in Luke chapter 9, they enjoyed several unique protections, and that's what Jesus is referring to here in Luke 22. They enjoyed several unique protections. Their first unique protection was in the spiritual realm. You see, we saw last week that Satan wanted to sift the disciples as wheat. He had begged for them, right? And Jesus was warning them, I'm going to let him at after you, right? Well, when Jesus sent them out in Luke <coughs> chapter 9, there, there was some spiritual protection. There was, a, there was protection within the spiritual realm in the sense that Jesus' hour had not yet come. 
Jesus' hour is referring to kind of where we're at now, where they're going to leave the the upper room, they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the betrayers are going to come, and Jesus is going to go through his trial, his persecution, his crucifixion, and so on. That's really the hour that Jesus came to do. That's the whole get of what he came to do. But in Luke chapter 9, that hour hadn't come yet. And so what happened was that Satan was bound from, from... attacking the way he really wanted to attack, right? We saw last week that, that Satan is, can only attack us to the degree that God gives him permission to attack us, right? And so, so they have, in Luke chapter 9, in this first sending out, they have a spiritual protection that, that Satan cannot attack him as, as he would like. The second unique protection that they enjoyed was in the physical realm. Um, see, although Jesus was despised by the religious leaders and they really wanted, they wanted him dead and they're trying to figure out how they're going to get rid of Jesus, well, simultaneously, Jesus was immensely popular and loved by all the people. And, and so as a result, his popularity made way for two things. First of all, it made the religious leaders reluctant to move against Jesus why? Well, because they're consummate politicians and everybody loves them and so they, they don't want to have the people turn against them. So, so uh, his popularity made way for protection from that. Secondly, Jesus' popularity led to an atmosphere of friendly hospitality. And so in that climate, when Jesus, and here's the point, when Jesus sent his disciples out, they didn't need any supplies and they didn't need any protection Um, Because they were enjoying the benefits of being associated with Jesus in this friendly climate, this hospitable climate. (coughs) And so Jesus reminds his disciples about that here in verse 35. He says, hey, the last time I sent you out, it went just like I said it would, right? And and they, they admitted, yeah, it went just like you said it would. Now, hit the pause button for a second. Jesus is about here in the next verses. He's basically gonna say, "Uh, yeah, well, it's not gonna be like that anymore. You know, he's basically about to tell them, you know, the climate's changing and you guys need to be aware of that. But, but just this attitude, just this idea, it, it bears us hitting the pause button and just slowing down and just taking a walk with what Jesus is doing here because it's so important for your walk. What Jesus does, first of all, he reminds them of his faithfulness in the past, doesn't he? He says, the last time I sent you out, you didn't have to bring anything and you were provided for, weren't you? And they admitted, yes, yeah. We, we were provided for. See, here's the thing. I'll put this on the screen for you because it's an important principle for us to just take note of and maybe take a walk with for a little bit. There is power in remembering God's faithful to us, faithfulness to us in times past. Isn't there power in just remembering God's faithfulness in times past? When you go through an immediate trial, if you can reflect on the times when in past trials, God has been faithful to you. I want to think about David, David facing Goliath, right? Now, <clears throat> leading up to that, all the Israeli army freaking out. They see this giant and they're seeing all of their inadequacy and all they can focus on is, you know, we can't take him and he's brutal and he's, you know, and so they're all afraid. Now, David, he's the runt of the litter and he's not even in the army, man. He had to stay home tending the sheep and all and, and he gets this, this job of taking, you know, cheeses and supplies to, to the fighting men. So he goes up there and he sees Goliath now, he's outraged. He's like, you know, he hears Goliath 
spewing all of these blasphemies against God. And David's attitude is, somebody needs to put this guy out of my misery because like that is just wrong. So David says, let me at him. I'm going to take this guy out. And they all look at David. They're like, you're just a kid. Like he's been killing people since he was a kid. I mean, you can't do this. David's reply, when I was a boy and I was tending my father's sheep, and the lion or the bear came and attacked it, I fought, and I overcame that lion or the bear in the strength that God provided and in God's provision. This uncircumcised Philistine, he's going to be just like that, right? This is his incredible attitude. Now, we hear this story. We've heard it so many times. We've become desensitized to it. But just imagine, can you imagine being attacked by a bear or by a lion? Like, he actually was, Right? Brenda and I, years ago, we were taking a walk behind our house. We were, on a, we were on a path there along Temecula Creek. And all of a sudden, Brenda stops dead in her tracks, and she, she points up to the, there's kind of this high grass on a hill, and, and it's like literally from, from me to that screen, and there's a mountain lion right there. And she just, she goes, is that a mountain lion? And I look up, and, and, and I go, oh, no, baby, it's just a bobcat. I didn't want her freaking out. And uh, she's smarter than that. I mean, it's got the head the size of a bowling ball. It's just huge, you know. And uh, she's like, that's a mountain lion. I go, yeah, you're right, baby. It's a mountain lion. So she, her tears coming out. She's, she's getting weak in the knees. Like, she's going to collapse right there. And, uh, and he, here's the thing. He wasn't even looking at us. Like, his head was down. He was just sort of, like, you know, licking his paws or something. I go, baby, he didn't even see us. He's busy eating the last guy that walked by here. <laughs> You know, I'm just see, trying to lighten it up a little bit. I actually said that, didn't I? So, so that didn't help. <laughs> She's still losing it. I, I go, Brenda, Brenda, you got to get a grip, man. You, you just cool it. Be cool, nerd. Like, you know, <laughs> this, this thing's going to come. You just need to cool it. I go, just walk calmly. And so we walk. We're, you know, watching it like a hawk, you know, but we, we walked away. We got, you know, we got out of there, Right? It would, that was freaky enough. I can't imagine, like, you know, having to, to, like, fight a lion. But David found this. And here's the point. Man, Paul says this to the Philippians. He says that we, when we're, when we're in anxious situations, what, what happens? He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, that word thanksgiving, unsurprisingly, what's it mean in the Greek? It means an expression of gratitude right? Pretty straightforward. But you think about it, how can you express gratitude in the first place? You have to focus on God's past faithfulness to express gratitude, don't you? You see, and that's what David was so good at doing. He's facing a giant. He goes, you know what? God's God's been faithful in my past. I can trust him for, for this giant that I'm facing now. And so Jesus says now to his disciples, he says, hey, the last time I sent you out went just like I said, didn't it? And they're like, yep, you provided for us, you took care of us. But now Jesus says to them, beginning in verse 36, hey, it ain't going to be like that anymore, right? And the idea where Jesus is going, it's not that God's not going to be faithful to provide for them anymore. That's not his point. His point is is that the welcoming climate that they once enjoyed and that they once had been operating in, hey, that's not going to be the same. The provisions that you once enjoyed in the past, they're not going to be there either. This is what Jesus is about to say, verse 36. He said to them, but now, 
Hey, in the past, I sent you no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. You didn't lack a thing, right? But now, he says, verse 36, he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. Uh, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus here, he's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from the scriptures that talk about the coming Messiah and specifically talking about the hardships that Messiah is going to face. That's the idea here. Um, For the things concerning me, he says, have an end. And so these disciples answer him. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So again, Jesus, he's quoting here from Isaiah 53, 11. It's a prophecy about the, the persecution that Messiah is going to face. And the idea that he's conveying to these guys is, guys, times have changed. Times have changed. Before you received the goodwill and the hospitality of the people because of your affiliation with me, because I had the goodwill and the hospitality of the people. That's the way it was before. But now, ironically, because of your affiliation with me, you're going to be facing a hostile world Because what? They're turning against me. And it's all going down here in about an hour, right? And so this is what you are facing. So so Jesus is warning them. He's warning us, look, you have to be prepared to live in a hostile environment. You just have to be prepared, not only for spiritual attack, but you have to be uh, prepared for for the inevitable attack that you're going to come under as a Christian in the world. Listen, Christianity, coming to Christ, it's not like playing a country western song backward where you get your truck back and your car back and your wife back and your job back and your dog back, right? It's not like that. Um, Yes, it's a joy to come to know the Lord. Um, We had, you know, first Wednesday this last week, and and I don't know if you guys were there. It was an amazing time. Sherry Youngward was there leading worship for us. She shared her testimony. Uh, Russell shared his testimony. Waylon shared his testimony. Just incredible to hear what God does, how he takes us as in our brokenness and he makes us new creations in Christ. And he's faithful and, and being a Christian and trusting the Lord with your life is something you will never regret. But listen, it ain't all puppy dogs and butterflies and no problems in your life. You know, the moment you say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, you have set yourself on a head-on collision with Satan and this world. And so it's not always going to go easily for us. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What on earth is Jesus saying here? Well, let's interpret Scripture with Scripture. Here's what Jesus said in John's Gospel, and it kind of puts uh, that Matthew quote that I just shared with you in, in context. Jesus said, if the world hates you, he's talking to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, right? Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, he said, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And therein is the problem. They they don't know the Father. 
They don't, they don't have a relationship, an abiding relationship with the Lord, so they're going to hate they're going to hate the Lord and they're going to hate you because you are you're in him. And so basically what Jesus is warning his disciples, hey, when I sent you out, you got along just fine, but now it's different and you need to get ready for that. And he says, you need to gear up. You're going to need a money bag, you're going to need a knapsack, and you're going to need a sword. And amazingly, he emphasizes this sword bit. He says, look, even if you've got to sell your coat to get a sword, sell your coat to get a sword. Now, let me just say that verse 36 is, is confusing and, and it's, a, it's a little bit, you know, conflicting. There's, there's conflicting understanding about this. It's a, little, it's a little controversial. There's a lot of people that will use Jesus' statement there in verse 36 about, you know, hey, get a sword, even if you've got to sell your coat to get a sword, make sure you get a sword. There's a lot of people that use this particular verse as a green light for gun ownership and for self-protection, um, you know, a guy reads this, he's like, see, honey, it's right there, chapter and verse, I need to go down to the gun store, you know? And I had a guy tell me one time, he goes, man, my worst fear is that my wife's going to, you know, I'm going to die, and my wife's going to sell all my guns for what I told her I paid for them, you know? <laughs> um, right? Let me just tell you, that's not the point Jesus is making here. That's not the point he's making here. That's not the contextual point. Now, that's not to say that the Bible precludes you from protecting your family. That, that is, there's, there's other scriptures you can use as proof text for that. Exodus chapters 21, 22. We see in there the principle making a distinction between taking a life in self-defense and, and killing somebody in the act of malice. There's a distinction that's made there. As a matter of fact, that's kind of foundational uh, proof text in our Judeo-Christian uh, distinction. Uh, in, in our Judeo-Christian setup, our jurisprudence system here of law, sort of based on that, on that biblical teaching. Um, but that's not the case that Jesus is making to his disciples here. Jesus is speaking figuratively, and I want to prove that to you uh, as we go through it. The point that Jesus is trying to emphasize here to his disciples is that what, what you enjoyed up until this point is all changing, and now times are going to get really hard. Now, the disciples, they don't know that. They're taking Jesus literally, and we see it in verse 38. Look, Lord, here are two swords. You said to sell our sword. We got two of them, right? And Jesus' answer, he says, that is enough. Now, what he's not saying is, yep, check, two swords. You're well-armed. That's good, right? He, he's not saying that. I mean, some people think when he says, you know, that is enough, that, that it's kind of, he's talking um, sarcastically, like, yeah, that'll do it, you know, kind of attitude. Um, really, what he's saying is that that's enough of that kind of talk, right? You're taking this literally, I really meant it more figuratively. And, and let me prove this. Uh, skip ahead to verse 49. We'll come back and cover the other scriptures in a minute. But again, they're, they're, they're in verse 49, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've made their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying, they're, they're, they're getting ready, and Judas shows up with, with a, a band of, of people to, to you know, take Jesus into custody and to crucify him, right? And so verse 49 tells us, after Judas and this band of guys shows up on the scene to capture Jesus, it says, when those around him, now this is talking about the disciples, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to, to Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? 
is now the time. We have two swords. Shall we strike with a sword? And then one of them struck the servant of the high priest. Now, all of the gospels leave this person anonymous except for John. John says, it was Peter, <laughs> right? So <coughs> Peter struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his right ear, a guy by the name of Malchus. But Jesus answered and he said, permit even this. And he touched the ear and he healed him. That's a weird thing right there. Hey, you dropped something. Uh, here you go, <laughs> you know. There you go. Heals this guy. Just Jesus being Jesus, right? But here's the thing. Uh, so often, again, we, we read the harmony of the Gospels. We get more information. Matthew shares this whole encounter and Peter hacking off the guy's ear and all. Um, doesn't tell us it's Peter. Keeps him anonymous. But, but Matthew, basically, Jesus turned to Peter and here's what he said. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, why on earth would Jesus say that if previously he meant literally that they should start arming themselves and acting in in an aggressive way in their faith? That is not the point. It's clear that Jesus' exhortation to his disciples to take provisions in a sword is not a literal exhortation, that it's a figurative exhortation. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he says this, this is intended only to show that the times would be very perilous so that no man would think himself safe if he had not a sword by his side. Now, having said that, there is several important principles here that we need to take note of. Not only is this, number one, a warning of the perilous times that are coming, and it certainly is that. Not only, secondly, is this a reminder that we need to remember God's faithfulness in times past, and we certainly need to do this. But thirdly, I want you to see the principle of service that Jesus shares with these guys, that we are to prepare as best we can. That the Christian life is one where you do your best, you pray that it's blessed, and you let God take care of the rest, right? And so, so we, even though we're going into a hostile climate, even though we live in, in a world that, that really is going the opposite direction of Christianity, listen, what we need to do as Christians in this world is that we can't, we can't just live our lives just, just blindly thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go without any sort of provision, without any sort of protection, without any sort of preparation, and, and just blindly think that God's going to show up. We can't put God to the test that way. Now, now God will be faithful and he will do his part, but we as Christians, we got to do our part. Let me just illustrate this with, with, with one, one little example. Um, years ago when uh, the earthquake, uh, great, huge earthquake, it was like 9-2 or something, 9-3, it hit uh, Indonesia right off of the coast of Banda Aceh. And there was a huge tsunami. It killed over a quarter million people in, in the whole region, in Thailand and all. And right there in Banda Aceh, it killed over 100,000 people. Now, Banda Aceh was uh, a, an area, and it still is today, um, radical, um, militant Muslim population. Uh, Westerners could not get in to, the, to this area. But after this natural disaster, they were in such dire straits that they were allowing Westerners to come in and to bring relief. I mean, to the point to where we had an aircraft carrier parked off their coast ferrying in supplies to their, their local airport to, to help the people. 
Well, we saw all this go down, and we said, man, that's an opportunity to get in there and bring the gospel. So we put together a team. We, we were going to go there. Now, we had no idea what to expect. Rather than just getting on a plane and saying, oh, just God's just going to provide, and let's just go show up, we said, what can we do? And we thought, well, um, we, we really don't know what kind of situations, what kind of circumstances we're going to go into. We might, because of the devastation, we, you know, we're not just going to go get a hotel room. Like, they're all collapsed and stuff. Like, we probably may even have to sleep out in the jungle. So we went, we, we got all of our provisions for the things that we would need to bring just to, to have on our person that we were prepared, prepared for that eventuality. As well, we went online and we got press credentials online. We wanted some sort of a cover for going over there, right? And so just as, you know, you can go online and you can, get, you can, you can buy an ordination online. Did you know that? Your cousin says, hey, would you marry me? And you can go and you can get, you know, an ordination online and officiate their wedding. I don't recommend it, but you can do it, Right? Well, you can do the same thing with press credentials. There was a place we found where we could get a press credential, and we had a little magazine at the time at the church, so we weren't really lying. We said we were reporters for Revival Magazine, and so, and so we went over under the cover as reporters. Now, that, we did every, you know, some other things. That was kind of our preparation. Well, here's the thing. We ended up having to use all of that stuff when we went over there. Our press credentials got us onto a UN military helicopter that took us to the destruction zone. If we hadn't had those press credentials, we never would have gotten there. And it was totally a surreal scene. It was like, you know, it was like a, the movie footage you see at Vietnam. We got on this, this twin-rotor Malaysian military helicopter, um, and me and my team are there, and they fly us in, and they do a, what they call a hot unload, where they land, and the rotors are all still going, and all the grasses is blowing, you know, and we jump out, and there we are, and it's all this noise and all this commotion, and all of a sudden the helicopter flies away, and now it's deathly quiet, and it's just us standing out in the middle of the jungle. And we're like, well, now what? You know? <laughs> and so we, we, you know, there was the part where we let God lead and we let God move and work and we followed his leading, but we did everything that we could to prepare and to be engaged and involved. Now, Jesus explains this same idea, what I just told you about in a parable. If you remember back in Luke 19, I'll put it on the screen for you. Parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is telling this story, and basically it, it's, it's really a story about him and his coming to his people and his people rejecting him and him moving and working through his servants and all, and then a time when he's going to return. So here's how it goes down. He said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, and he said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Verse 15, he continues, it says, and so it was. Now, by the way, we live in between the verses I've just read and this verse I'm now about to read because the verse I'm about to read is the picture of Jesus returning, right? Verse 15 says, so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, what servants? The servants that he'd given gifts to, right? He'd given investment to. He commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. That's the point, 
right? Understand, we live in between these verses. Jesus has gone to heaven, and a day is coming when he's going to return. But in the meantime, you and I are commanded to do the Lord's business. And so God has called every one of us to engage and use whatever he's entrusted to us to serve him. And and we do whatever we can legally, morally, and ethically to serve and invest the talents that he's given to us, right? And we do this, Jesus says now in Luke chapter 22, we do it in a hostile world. We do it in a hostile world, which means, and this is, if you haven't heard anything I've said, this is the point here. Here's what this means. It means that we need to prepare ourselves, okay? You need to be prepared. You live in a hostile world. You have duties and responsibilities, how you're supposed to live out your faith. And how are you supposed to do it? You're supposed to prepare. That's the whole metaphorical point of, you know, bring a knapsack and a sword and all these stuff. It's about you being prepared. Well, how are you supposed to prepare? Back to verse 39. We'll pick up the the, the story but I'll just tell you how you're supposed to to prepare. It's prayer. Prayer. Verse 39, coming out. He's talking about coming out of the upper room where they've been having the Last Supper. And now what he's going to say is they're heading to the Mount of Olives. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. And as, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came, here's the idea, guys. Hear it. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Guys, Satan's asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. The climate has changed. People aren't going to just provide everything for you now anymore. Well, you're going into a hostile world. You need to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. All right. Let me unpack this just really quickly and pay attention. Jesus here, going to the cross, represents great stress for Jesus. It's not what he would like to do for a couple of reasons. I'm not saying he didn't want to go to the cross because, of course, it was the joy that was set before him, the Bible tells him, that he endured the cross and despised its shame. And The joy that was set before him was redeeming us. What Jesus is doing here is he's asking the Father, is there another way that we can pull this off without me having to go through what I'm about to go through? Not just the physical agony of the crucifixion, But even greater than that, which caused even more stress to to Jesus, was that he was taking the sins of mankind upon him. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And with Jesus taking the sins of the earth upon, the sins of the world upon himself, he and the Father are going to be separated. You know, this is why he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because of the sins of the world that he took upon himself. And he experienced the wrath, the full wrath of God. That's what he wasn't happy about or wasn't excited about going to. That's what he's saying. Look, is there any other way? Right? And, and so the point that you got to just get right here is, you know, some people will go, oh, Christianity, it's so narrow. Jesus is the only way. It's just so narrow. Can I just tell you, life is narrow. One plus one will always equal two. It will never equal three. I don't care if you say that's too narrow and you want one plus one to equal three. Just because you says it equals three doesn't mean it equals three. 
okay? It equals two. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is the only way. He prayed, Lord, if there's any other way. Well, there was no other way. What happened? He went to the cross. That tells us there is no plan B. There is no, you do good and you try hard and God will grave it on the curve and you can come to him if you're a good person and you're not Charles Manson. That's not in the equation. It's that the only propitiation, the only payment, the only uh, reconciliation for your sin is Jesus dying on the cross for your sin in your place and you placing your faith in him. That's it. There is no, there is no other way. Salvation is found in no one else except for Jesus Christ. He's the way, he's the truth, and he is the life, right? And so this, this is, is the thing. The other thing Jesus does here in his prayer is he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Guys, this is so important. Now, man, there's so much we could say about prayer. I did a, a series on this when we went through our value series on prayer, and you can listen to that. Um, which that's not even exhaustive. There is so much more. You can go on our website. You know, there's a section there on what we believe. I talk about prayer there and, and the doctrine of prayer and all and w- what our position is here. But listen, the attitude, the idea of prayer, it's not to have your will done in heaven. It's to have God's will done on earth, right? The attitude of prayer is to come to God and say, look, you hold it in an open hand. God, here's what I'm going through. Here's what I want. Here's the way I see things. But you're God, and so I'm going to hold this in an open hand. Not my will be done. God, your will be done, right? And that's what Jesus does here. And so he says, not my will, your, be, your will be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, and, uh, from heaven strengthening him. Um, one of the commentators makes a point to say at this point that the angel did what the disciples failed to do, which kind of stings a little bit because when we get down, as we read this, you know, the disciples, Jesus told them, pray lest you enter into temptation, and they, they didn't. They, they kept going to sleep, right? And, and so the angel comes and strengthens him, right? Verse 44, and being found in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Scientifically, this is called uh, hematidrosis. And this is when you have your capillaries burst because you're under great stress and your sweat mixes with that blood and you actually sweat blood. Um, and this is brought about physiologically by great stress. And so Jesus, great stress as he's, as he's preparing to take the sins of the world upon himself and he's, he, he, these great drops of blood that he's sweating out. And when he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. They're so stressed out, they just went to sleep, right? And, and Matthew's gospel tells us this happened three times. Jesus comes to them, they're sleeping, he wakes them up. Losers, wake up, pray, like, come on, and goes back to praying, comes back. You guys are sleeping again? Come on, pray. And he's just told us why, lest you enter in temptation, right? And so this goes on and on, verse 46, and then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation, and while... He was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas does his dirty deed. He's betrayed Jesus, brings the band of people now going to take Jesus into custody, away from all the multitudes and all. And I want you to then see, and we've read the verses already, what goes down in verses 49 and 50 
the disciples wake up, and how do they react? Sword time, right? Time to get physical. Time to react, really, basically, time to react like the, word, like the world. Jesus is saying, look, the hard times are coming, and you need to be prayed up. And, and it's been said, if you're not in prayer and focused on things above, you're going to react like those down below. And that's exactly what happens here. Because these guys weren't in prayer, when the temptation came, they reacted just like everybody else in the world would react. They grabbed the sword and they start swinging. Time to fight, right? I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said, Peter was sleeping when he should have been praying, talking when he should have been listening, boasting when he should have been fearing, and fighting when he should have been surrendering. See, guys, listen. Without prayer, Peter was fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon in the wrong energy. And we need to take a walk with that. Ian Bounds in his book, The Power Through Prayer, he said, the person who prays puts God into the work. God does not come into our work as a matter of course or principle, right? He says, but he comes in by power and by urgency. In other words, what he's saying is, is that when you, you know, are in this situation, metaphorically, you've been sleeping and the situation already all of a sudden shows up in your life, if, if you haven't been praying, then the, the power of God and moving in the spirit of God and being heavenly minded is not going to be the first thing in, in your response. What you're going to find so often is that the first part of your response is going to be your sinful flesh. And that's the whole idea that Jesus is saying. Hard times, pressing, crushing, and you better be prayed up, guys. You better be in prayer because you can't trust what your reactions are going to be because they'll be fleshly and they won't be spiritual. Well, I want to close right now with four questions and a quote. As always, we'll put the questions up. They'll be up at the end of the service as well. These are for you to, to write down and take a walk with this week. Maybe you can discuss them in your community groups. Four questions. Number one, in your trials, do you take time to remember God's faithfulness? Question number two, are you doing all that you can do to prepare for your trials? Question number three, are you sleeping when you should be praying? And fourth question, are you fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon and the wrong energy? Four questions. Here's the quote. Each of us, Warren Wiersbe says, must decide whether we will go through life pretending like Judas, fighting like Peter, or yielding like Jesus Christ. Let's pray.